Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We bring you free-flowing conversations with top thought leaders in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. Sit back, relax, listen and enjoy as we share ideas and discuss topics that are important, timely, and we hope will transform the nonprofit world. Hello and welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. This is episode 49 and it was recorded on Thursday, April the 1st, 2021. I'm Vincent Duckworth. I'm a fundraiser and the CEO of the Trail Group. We are a national agency focused on bold leadership and transformative fundraising. This is our fifth episode of 2021. For this episode, we were joined by Paula Atfield, CEO of Stephen Thomas Limited, Mark Bloomberg of Bloomberg's Law, and Kay Sprinkle Grace. Our topic, fundraising during the pandemic, how to find answers in a sea of question marks. To say 2020 was a year of disruption would be the understatement of the decade maybe even of the century. The nonprofit sector has been hit hard. Revenues are down. Strategic plans are pretty much trashed. But there are silver linings, lots of them. Join me as the four of us discuss how best to fundraise during times of great uncertainty. It's time for the Brain Trust Philanthropy Podcast. Welcome to Episode 49 of Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. This is our fifth episode of 2021. Our topic Fundraising during the pandemic, how to find answers in a sea of question marks. We have three great guests with us today, all big thinkers in our sector. They're excited to be here. I'm excited to be here. Let's get started. First, joining us from San Francisco, we have Kay Sprinkle Grace. Kay has been a nonprofit leader for more than 30 years. She is a consultant, an author, and an international speaker. This is Kay's second visit to the Brain Trust Philanthropy Podcast. She first visited us almost a year ago to the day. Early last April, Kay joined Angela Chapman, Ken Mayhew, and Tom Hearn, and me, as we talked about fundraising in the time of COVID. Kay, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Vincent. Kay, you and I have talked a few times over the past year, and I know you have lots of projects on the go, including a leadership initiative with Tony Myers and others. Last time you were here, I asked you about a creative writing course you were taking at Stanford. Kay, I know that alongside this course, you were also writing, I think, a novel, which is a first for you. Before we hear from you on what what you're seeing and hearing about fundraising, can you give us an update on how your first foray into fiction writing is going? Well, it has turned into an imaginative memoir, memoir, and this is a time of kind of genre blending. And so I am now nearly 90,000 words written, edited. I've probably tossed out another 90,000, which is how it works. And I am nearly done with the first draft. And the imaginative memoir includes my narration as the first person observing this, but it also allows for scenes as though it's part of a novel. And so the scenes kind of move it forward, and then there's a narrative in between. And uh, I'm very excited about it. Uh, I have three people who are waiting for it to read it, uh, friends of mine who are writers themselves who said they would read it. And before I embarrass myself by giving it to my paid reader and editor, and uh, so I'm very excited. It, is, it has been such a remarkable uh, project for me, uh, during the, the, the COVID. And I, what I say to, they say, well, how do you find time? And I said, I take the time that I would have spent driving to see my clients because now I can just sit at my desk. Oh, time for Zoom. 
and I log on instead of having to drive 45 minutes across San Francisco. So thank you for asking. I'm well, that's great. Excited. That's awesome, Kay. And, uh, and, you know, writing stuff like that does take discipline. And so you you clearly found a spot to put the discipline. But mo- what I want to know, I think what we all want to know, is when are we going to be able to read it? Well, that I am hoping that by the autumn, I will have it to a point where I can either self-publish yeah. or... and. I also, Karen Osborne, who's known to many of us, um, Karen is also a writer. She's got a memoir coming out this summer, and she interviewed me on her podcast, which is called What Are You Reading? What Are You Writing? And it's an interview about this book. And she asked me the same question. And I think by autumn, uh, I will probably be ready to, to self-publish or to see if somebody else wants to publish it. Well, that's awesome. Well, we can't wait, Kate. Thanks for sharing that. And thanks. Thank I can hear the joy in your voice. Oh, yeah. So I'm yeah. thrilled that you got a project that was <laughs> joyful. Um, so next, joining us from Toronto, we have Paula Atfield. Paula is the president and CEO of Stephen Thomas Limited. Like Kay, Paula has been on our podcast before. In fact, this is Paula's sixth visit with us. In the pre-show, I was wondering if we needed to get her a pension, but Paula said that a pin would be fine. Um, Paula has previously joined us for three trends episode, an episode on the fundraising narrative, and uh, the episode where we shared what we would tell our 21-year-old selves if we could go back in time. Um, Paula also recently joined us as a guest for Betrayal's Fundraising Ask Anything Zoom chat series. So welcome, Paula. Thank you, Vincent. It's so great to be back again. And I'm working on that pin. Um, Thank you. Paula, there, there was a wonderful piece about you and your, and your term as chair of AFP Canada that was published in December. You had lots of great reflections to share, and one of them was about how COVID is likely not a temporary issue. Specifically, you talked about the enduring stress and the importance of taking care of our mental well-being as fundraisers. Before we hear your, about your thoughts about what's next for the sector, would you mind sharing a bit about what you're doing for your own mental health and well-being? Sure, sure. And I hope you can hear the, the joy in my voice as we heard it in Kay's when she when she talked about what, what uh, she does for her own mental well-being. I, um, I have a, a fairly long-standing practice of mindfulness, um, Vincent, that I'm able to tap into. It, it, it helps keep me in the moment and it reminds me to stay present. I also enjoy very much uh, going for walks because that's one of the few things we can actually do these days. And um, I make it a point. I live in downtown Toronto and um, sometimes the, the concrete jungle can, can grate on my nerves. But I do try to find the joy in the nature that exists within the city. And that's the birds. And now that uh, the birds, the trees, uh, those kinds of things, a little bit more sunshine. Uh, in, a, in addition to that, I, I get out into nature whenever I can, and I love doing that um, as well. I've taken some courses as well on Coursera. It's an online free platform. Mental well-being courses are available to you for free, which is great, which teach you all about the science of uh, well-being. There's a good course by a Yale professor, Laurie Santos, um, as well as I love doing puzzles, jigsaw puzzles. I'll sit and do jigsaw puzzles, listen to podcasts. I think uh, Kay mentioned that. And um, embarrassingly, some really trash TV when I have to, you know, from time to time, some bad network series, some bad TLC story, series, whatever whatever works. But I think it's, it's important for all of us and those who are lucky enough to still be 
working to acknowledge the impact on our well-being of a pandemic. This is huge and it impacts us no matter where we sit. And if we're lucky enough to have a job, maybe we're working way more hours than we used to. Uh, I hope that your listeners will be able to take time in their days as they need it and just acknowledge the challenges and the and this extra stress that's upon us and take the time that's needed mm-hmm. to take care of yourself. I, I liken it just to, to um, you know, in, in an airplane, when they tell you as the as the mask comes down, the air air mask comes down, put it on on your child or someone next to you who can't. Um, second, actually, put it first on yourself, and that is, if you can't take care of yourself, you're no good to anyone else. So, thank you for the opportunity. I already feel calmer. That was awesome. <laughs> Right, right. You just thank you for sharing that, Paula. And um, and uh, for those that weren't privy to our pre-show, Kay talked about uh, listening to podcasts while she's able to go for some walks herself, which is great. So clearly, that's something that we're all doing. So thanks for sharing that, Paula. Uh, finally, also joining us from Toronto, we have Mark Bloomberg. Mark is a partner at Bloomberg's Law in Toronto. He works almost exclusively advising nonprofits and registered charities on their work in Canada and abroad. This is Mark's second visit with us at Brain Trust Philanthropy. Welcome back to the podcast, Mark. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I guess now that uh, Paul has mentioned those who cannot take care of themselves, you're coming to me, which is me. So that's a good summary. Um, but uh, hopefully when this podcast actually comes out, we will be in a much better place with more vaccinations and better weather and uh, all around everyone will be happier. So that'll be good. That's great. Thanks, Mark. Mark, last time you were with us, I asked you to tell us about um, charity, charitydata.ca, uh, one of the resources, one of the great resources you've created for the sector, which takes uh, Canada Revenue Agency data and puts it in a very presentable form for all of us to have a look at. We've also set up some other great resources, including smartgiving.ca. I'm wondering if you can take a few minutes to tell us uh, what that site is and, and what inspired you to set it up. Right. So uh, smartgiving. Uh .ca was really um, part of a program many, uh, well, more than a decade ago, where the Canadian government was actually doing active capacity building and they were having groups uh, doing things uh, in the sector, like educational things and, and that. And it was really not geared towards helping a sophisticated philanthropists who've been thinking about it for 10 years with making donations. It's more geared towards helping an average person just think through that there are differences between charities. They're not all equal. They may all have the same status, but they don't necessarily, um, you know, they have different things they're focused on. Some are doing a better job than others. It's more focused on how to avoid giving to really bad charities, uh, which I think is half the problem, because if you give to a great charity, you give to a good charity, you give to a charity that's trying to be really good, all of that could be good. But when you give to uh, charity scams and things, and we have had that $7 billion problem just with the one type of charity scam in Canada, uh, that's not great. And I uh, want to try and encourage people not to be involved with that sort of stuff. Uh, often they don't understand all of the complexity and you don't have to understand all of the complexity to understand that, you know, there's good charities, there's not good ones and try to find good ones in your community doing great work and, and help them out in any way that you can. Um, so that was sort of the impetus for it. And um, usually around November, December, it gets a lot of people looking at it. <laughs> and uh, and that and charity data is, uh, is doing quite well, where we have about 16 years of data on every um, every uh, charity in Canada. And funnily enough, and this isn't because we're wonderful, it's just the system that the CRA has. 
CRA is the only system in the world where you can really go into the regulator and say, give me a disc with all the charities and all their information and you get this disc. Mm. So we can do that. The US doesn't have it. Uh, New Zealand doesn't have it. Australia doesn't have it. No other country has this. So I'm waiting for, I've been waiting now for many years because then they started distributing the US information by uh, electronic means to get to see a US site that has it. So I don't go to GuideStar and I look at one charity. I want to look at all the charities from top to bottom. And of course, that may never happen in the US, but I'm just saying that it's it's something we have that's a little bit unique in Canada. Um, and um, and so, uh, yeah, hoping that uh, we'll be able to maintain it and, uh, and improve on it and, and things like that. Okay. Well, thank you for that, Mark. And the sector thanks you and Bloomberg's for that. Uh, just so you know, as a little side tidbit, we, um, as a team at the Treo, uh, when we get together, we uh, we do these sort of monthly, uh, what we call them wine and learns. Uh, that's a recruitment poster in case you're wondering. Um, yes, there's wine and we do learn, but uh, one of the sessions at our most recent wine and learn was um, how to use charitydata.ca. And so it's a, it's a standard requirement at our firm now when we're talking to potential clients or we're looking at comparators um, that we actually use that as an, as a, as an information source. Um, and we use it because it's so well presented, Mark. So thank you for that. Thank um, you very much. Really appreciate that. Um, okay, let's get started. Thank you all for joining us on this, our 49th podcast. So I guess one more till we get 50. How about that? Um, to say 2020 was a year of disruption would be an understatement. Well, the understatement of the decade, maybe even of the century. Um, today, we are three months into 2021 and just over a year from when the COVID-19 pandemic changed our world. As we begin the third wave of infection, we are fighting back. We now have vaccines and, and every day millions of us are getting vaccinated. As of last Friday in the US, an average of 2.3 Americans per day are being vaccinated. And I heard in the pre-show that it's been as high as 3 million Americans per day being vaccinated. Restaurants are open, albeit with restrictions. The same goes for recreation and fitness facilities. Not so much for universities and colleges. Students are still taking classes online. Our theaters and performance halls remain closed. Overall, the nonprofit sector has been hit hard. Philanthropy has been especially disrupted and itself has been a disruptor. Overall, revenues are down and yesterday's strategic plans are pretty much trashed. At the Brain Trust Philanthropy podcast, we usually look to the future near the end of each year with an annual trends episode in December, but too much is happening and fast. We are still in partial lockdown, albeit part three, and we aren't any closer to understanding what the world will look like on the other side of this pandemic. Or are we? Some things are becoming very clear, some things are still a bit foggy, and some things remain as opaque as ever. Kay, let's start with you. What has become clear to you? Where are we headed? And what do we know? What's become clear to me is that in our lifetimes, this is the first experience that has truly been global. In other words, it doesn't matter if you are in Romania or you are in Australia or Canada or the US, we have all experienced the same thing. We have all had the same just wickedly destructive changes to our lives. And what I am hoping is that that common experience will lead to common solutions. Because what I believe is that what this has exposed, whatever country you're in, is that we have tremendous fissures in the fabric of our society. We have uh, people who have experienced this pandemic at a level that is 
just unknown, even to people in the same community. And there has been such an exposure of the inequity that we have had even in vaccine distribution. And I see that the best future possible, and I don't know if I'm optimistic that we can do it, but the best future possible would be that people from all parts of the world would come together and say, how can we as nonprofits, as NGOs, how can we in fact call on our tremendous experience in solving problems at a local, regional, even national level? And how can we take this and invite in other sectors to participate in the solution finding? I have had experience with design thinking as it comes out of IDEO.org and what they call the D School at Stanford, the Hassel Plattner Institute of Design. And this whole idea that we can have human-centered solutions to these major, major problems that we have experienced is to me very exciting. But I see, and this is where my I temper my optimism, is I see that there are still some nonprofits who are believing that once this is over, please, Vincent, once it's over, can we just get back to normal? No, there is no normal. There is no normal. And I see that this is an opportunity for us to truly craft a different kind of future, a different kind of participation. And the reality is that certainly here in the U.S., we've had the aggregation of more wealth than we have ever seen um, last year. I mean, the, the, the wealth of the very wealthy is up by $1.8 trillion during the pandemic. And they are giving it. In fact, there was a remarkable sidebar and headline in the Chronicle of Philanthropy in February that said that the, the list of people who have contributed to housing issues in Silicon Valley during the pandemic reads like the Stanford University major donor list. And we did see that. But how do we keep people engaged? And my last point on this is that we have kind of a one and done, I did it, okay, it didn't get better, so now I'm going to go fund something else. And we have an obligation, I believe, as nonprofits, as NGOs, to instruct our investors about what it takes to move the needle when you are looking at colossal social issues, social justice issues, cultural issues, and to get their participation. So we are doing, with my clients, we're doing a lot of listening right now, a lot of listening in our communities to see how they read what we're feeling. Kay, I love your optimism. Mark, I'm going to turn to you in just a second because I think Kay set a very fertile landscape for some of the things that you and I have been talking about uh, going forward. Um, but uh, Kay, I, I love your optimism and it was tempered by, you know, if we go to the one and done, maybe not so much, but there's a real opportunity for I th what I heard you say is maybe for NGOs and the people that work in that space, in our space, to actually lead us out of this. I, I believe that's true, but I believe that's true for a decade, long before the <laughs> pandemic. I believe that we have the experience, we have the tools, we have everything that could 
really coalesce local government, corporations, foundations. And one of my really remarkable experiences in the work that I've done in Central and Eastern Europe is working with an organization in Serbia, the Divok Foundation. And what they do is they identify an issue every year. They coalesce everyone around that issue, foundations, associations, chambers of commerce. Okay, how are we going to solve it? One year it was upgrading schools because the schools were very, very low standard in terms of equipment. And everybody rallies around that. And what we saw, I would just add to what I said previously, is that it was a reminder of something that I've believed for a long time, is that people fund issues. Philanthropy is driven by values. Values become issues, and people fund their issues. We saw it in the pandemic. We saw it with the major philanthropists who followed their issues, whether it was racial inequity whether it was social justice, whatever it was, they identified the issue and then they found the organizations that were doing it well. And there is some and, question, there is some question, Kay, on whether that one of the silver linings coming out of the pandemic um, is, is that really the way that we still want to do business? And I'm going to actually turn it over to Mark to give some perspective on that. Um, thank you for that optimistic start, though, Kay. That was awesome. Mark, don't let us down. Don't bring us down, buddy. <laughs> well, okay, I might have to bring you down. Okay. So, um, you know, you asked the question of uh, what do we know? And I think the answer is, in a way, very little uh, about certain issues, like uh, issues like uh, how well have charities fared in this uh, particular thing. I think in 2022, we'll have a better idea about 2020. And that's sad to say, because uh, some industries can give a weekly or a monthly update as to exactly what's happening in their industry and how things are going and employment numbers and other things in the charity sector. You know, we somehow are so unimportant that two years from now, it's good enough. We'll, we'll know the information then. And when you're talking about policy and you're talking about government investments and things like that, uh, doing a little opinion poll with 1,500 people doesn't mean much. When you actually have the real data, that's what actually will, in some cases, be uh, more important. And so we're, we're not doing great in that area. Um, in terms of what we know, also, it's the same old story of charities are in their own little sectors, subsectors. Uh, pieces, uh, you know, if you're a, um, a charity that helps people get jobs, you, you keep in regular contact with other charities that do it. And so sometimes you're seeing what's going on in your own organization and what's going on in 50 other organizations, but you're not necessarily seeing the whole charity sector in Canada, 86,000 charities, 252 different categories of charities and things like that. So you sometimes will draw from your own experiences things and think that that therefore is what the, is affecting the sector. I agree with Kay's point that, uh, you know, we sometimes don't even know what's going on with people in our own community and uh, and people could have very it's a disastrous impacts in COVID. Um, I think one of the things I, I wasn't comfortable with in the beginning was this sort of disaster scenario. Everything is bad. Um, so, uh, I think in Canada, in the end, when we look at it, we'll see what has happened. Like I said, maybe it'll be next year. We'll know the data. But um, some groups have definitely done better. Some are the same and some have done worse. Um, but it's it's even more complicated than that because some groups that have fundraising revenue down significantly, they're not necessarily worse off because their costs also went down significantly. Um, one of my clients was spending two million on travel went down to sixty thousand, so they're down a million. But actually, net they're actually up. You know, so it's it's complicated. One actually has to parse the the stuff. 
We just did a little report looking at the first 1600 groups, which have 2020 and 2019 filings just to look at them. But it's certainly not the sort of things that we've seen where people are saying it's 50% down and all this. It didn't make any sense to me. Uh, maybe as a, in totality, it might be a few percent down. Some groups much better, others not. But much in Canada, a little bit different than America, about 70% of our revenue actually comes from government and government's actually been increasing money. So I actually think the big test is last year was a devastating year, especially from a mental health point of view. But it's, um, it's uh, not necessarily devastating from a financial point of view with all those um, uh, government uh, supports that were given to people and charity supports and other things. Um, the, the big challenge may be in six months or a year when government starts to cut back. And, uh, you know, a 10% cut in government money means we need to fundraise 100% more to make that up. And no one thinks we can fundraise 100% more in Canada. So a 10% cut would be very significant, but it might be much more than 10%. And some areas may be very disproportionately affected. So I'm very worried about that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, uh, it was mentioned uh, that some people have made a lot of money. I think they talk about how average folk have maybe lost about $4 trillion. And then some rich people have basically gained about $4 trillion. And I don't think that they've given that to charity. Um, I think that maybe charities up 10%, maybe in America or something. So there's some minor variations, but you've got a lot more super wealthy people as a result of COVID. And um, unfortunately, I wish charity was the answer, but I think it's about 10% of the answer. There's all these other things, whether it's taxes and government spending and all that. When uh, Trudeau makes a little change and decides he's going to give more money, you know, for the Canadian, uh, for children, you know, families that have uh, children and earning under a certain amount, that can bring 500,000 people right out of poverty. You know, no charity can do that. No thousand charities can do that sort of thing. So having government act in that way can be really important. And then I always think to a presentation I did about six months before um, the COVID started on disruption in the charity sector. There was a lot of disruption. I mean, we had Donald Trump in the White House, which maybe Americans think that only affects America, but it affects everyone, really. We were so much disruption going on before COVID and then COVID hit. So it wasn't like we're starting with a nice place. It wasn't great before COVID and then COVID just added a whole bunch of other stuff. And then I think the other point I would just make is in fundraising, there's a lot of changes going on and it's important that people sort of follow it. Um, the, the community centric fundraising sort of initiative in San Francisco. No, actually, I think it's in uh, Seattle. Um, they have put forward some very interesting ideas in terms of, uh, basically having more equity. And I think that people really need to pay attention to the stuff. Um, I thought as part of my own mental health, I would listen to um, podcasts and uh, Rikesh Lakhani sent me one from Malcolm Gladwell on a $100 million donation talking about it. And it was, I was furious at the end of this thing. He was talking about, and, and we know, and I've been involved with some big donations like that, that sometimes they end up going to the people who have the most money and they have huge endowments. And honestly, this money may be spent in 20 or 50 years. It's not needed right now. And then you have other groups who have nothing. So looking at it and how do we deal with society and fundraising and and uh, all that sort of stuff is uh, there's some really important issues that I think we have to grapple with uh, for fundraising to remain uh, relevant uh, to the communities. And uh, so I think that a lot of the changes that will happen are, it's not like only because of COVID they're happening, they were happening before uh, COVID, but they will be exacerbated and uh, the impacts of COVID unfortunately are not at all evenly distributed. We're not all in this together, unfortunately. I think our policymaking would be a lot better if we were, but uh, you know, some people are going off to, uh, you know, Caribbean uh, beach vacations for three months, you know, and avoiding some of the, the hardship. Um, and unfortunately, obviously not everyone is, is doing that sort of thing.
thing. So um, yeah, um, I don't know if that even remotely responded to your uh, question. That, that was awesome, Mark, um, uh, and very uh, rich in many layers, uh, like Kay's was. Um, lots of really great thoughts in there. I'm going to ask Paula to weigh in in just a second, but just before I do, I, 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 this is not about a person. This is not necessarily even what might be about policy or government, but I was reading just yesterday that um, arguably one of the largest uh, philanthropists, perhaps of all time, happened during COVID with Mackenzie Scott's giving away $6 billion dollars. Um, and she gave it away very quickly. And I don't, I don't know what type of person or what type of human she is, but I, in some ways, I have to say I admired, uh, how she did it and what she did it. But the, the net result of that on her personal financial position was that at the end of the year was that she had more money than she did at the beginning, having given away six billion dollars. Some, I mean, that's fantastic for all the recipients, but that also speaks to something in the system. Um, where, where, where that's where that four trillion dollars, you know, a lot of that could be, you know, put in there. So it's, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, sit there and say, oh, you know, it's horrible, but it's something that's interesting to, to note. Um, so I know we'll come back to that, but I want to give you some voice if I could, Paula. Sure. Yeah. I was just uh, nodding my head all the way through uh, listening to Kay and Mark, and there's so many wonderful threads we can uh, tuck into there. And Vincent, um, you know, you just identified something that I think Kay and Mark have also spoken to, and that's the fundamental inequities that COVID has laid bare, not only in Canada, the U.S., but across the world from from the, the distribution of the vaccine to um, the distribution of wealth or the redistribution of wealth. It's simply not happening. And that's something, um, Kay, I think to your wonderful point that we're going to have to be listening hard to our communities as to how to actually redistribute wealth. And there's a lot of good work um, going going on in that regard. Um, decolonizing wealth by Edgar Villanueva is one very important read, I would suggest to your listeners if they haven't already picking that up. Um, on, on a positive note, I think, um, because this is, a lot of this is dark and heavy, and, and to Mark's point that there, there are there is no one size charity here or no one size uh, nonprofit. There's all sorts of levels of um, charities and nonprofits doing really well. And then others closing their doors, frankly, because because of the, the situation, because of the lack of revenue from uh, events, special events having been canceled. As you said, Vincent, the arts are closing theaters like there's there's a lot of a lot of things that are happening. Government is not, and Mark, you kind of alluded to this too, government is not equipped to fill the gaps that, that COVID has laid bare. They weren't equipped in the first place pre-COVID. We have the charitable sector, the nonprofit sector to fill those gaps. And, and unfortunately, there, there, is, there, is a big, um, there is a big issue with charities having to close their door. Uh, on the plus side, on the positive side, fundraising is is still going strong, which is great. And we talk a lot in our in our in our respective countries about essential professions. And I like to think of fundraising as an essential pro profession as well, in the sense that it's connecting the philanthropists and the donors to to the organizations that are doing this Im important work. Um, and Kay, I just I love the idea of really leaning in, of listening, of hearing. And, and building solutions together and community solutions, uh, I think it's going to be hugely important for the sector. 
I do also think that risk and innovation is going to be, have to be on the radar of nonprofits. We're going to have to put ourselves out there a little bit in many, many respects, uh, making room to, to test and learn, uh, diversifying revenue streams, reinventing tried and true uh, methods and channels of fundraising for the masses, if you will, and also rethinking the way we do fundraising from um, the corporate sector, from major donors. Mark, you alluded to uh, community-centric fundraising. I think if you're a fundraiser and you haven't explored this idea that you should definitely look it up. There's lots of information available online there. And reinventing what we used to think of as donor-centered fundraising. That's where we put um, these wealthy people right at the very top and effectively controlling our missions and our and our organizations, that's all going to have to be rethought. It's not business as normal, as you said so aptly, Kay. Um, and there's one last piece I'll just I'll layer into the conversation, and, and we've, we've hinted at it, and that is um, diversity and inclusion and equity. So in the months following the murder of George Floyd, the protests that happened across the world almost – um, around the long-standing issues of racism and justice and injustice really came back to the forefront. And I just want to say that it no longer is diversity and inclusion alone going to be good enough. Our sector, the philanthropic sector, must be the leaders in the change. We must be accountable for our role in perpetuating system, um, racism and, and inequality. And it's our leaders who are going to have to really dig deeper and deeper to create a truly anti-racist practices in everything that we do, from fundraising to our HR practices and how we deal with our staff or work with our staff to the policies that govern um, our organizations, to how our organizations uh, um, engage with their constituents and their communities and their programs and their and their service delivery delivery. Ultimately, anti-racism will have to be the lens with which we view our, our work. I think hand in glove with all all multitude of other isms, but uh, anti-racism uh, has to start with the, with our with our nonprofit sector. We're we're allowing the corporate sector in some ways to run with this, and I I don't know. Do they have business running with it, or should we be leading it? I think we should be leading it, um, and I think you know there's. For, in terms of resources, I'll just give a shout out. There's a book called Collecting Courage, who, who um, uh, edited by Anika Allen, Camilla, Camilla Vital Nunes Pereira, and Nicole Salmon. And it, it actually features 14 stories of black fundraisers in North America. And if you don't believe me when I say we have systemic racism in our countries, then please read this book because you will see firsthand that we clearly do. And um, it's a really, really powerful and important read. So I, I'll, I'll, I'll pause there, Vincent. Um, I've said a whole lot and, and I've layered on a whole lot to the wonderful conversation that's, that's already happened. Um, remind me again of that title. I know you've been encouraging yeah. folks to read it and it's called what? Collecting Courage. Yeah, yeah, I know it's a, it's been making the rounds at AFP uh, in Canada and the U.S. And thank you for sharing that. Um, the great thing about this podcast for me is, is I get to collect people like you into a room to talk about things like this. This is fantastic. So who wants to sort of pull a thread on some of the stuff that we've just talked about? 
here. Um, I'm open to anybody sort of stepping in. Please don't feel shy. I know you're not a shy group. Who wants to pull a thread on one of the things that uh, Kay or, or Mark or, or Paula brought up? I, I'd, I'd like to pull a thread on the word charities. Um, as I, you know, look back on a very long career and think of what I want to do going forward, one of the things that I wanted to do was to try to get us to shift away from calling ourselves charities. And the difference is really kind of a, a very obvious and yet it's, it's syntax. I think that charities are perceived as serving issues like hunger, homelessness, whatever. I believe that public benefit corporations are nonprofits. We can say that we are there to solve it. And I'll just, I've worked with a feeding program here in San Francisco off and on for 25 years. And during the height of COVID, we were in the middle of a capital campaign, as well as trying to feed an uptick of 70% over what they usually feed. The food, the donations for food came roaring in well over $20 million in like two months that just came roaring in. And they suggested that we put the capital campaign on hold. And I said, you know, I think we can position this so that by the building expansion and the building out of the other facility, we can be part of the solution because we will, won't have to, you know, rent a 52,000 square foot uh, warehouse to, to, to store the food that we're now distributing. And you know, it worked. It worked. And not only that, on a campaign of 40 million, we had a lead gift of $8 million, you know, which is pretty extraordinary. Somebody who came in with 2 million and then they went back and asked for four or 6 million more. But my point is this, that I live in a bubble, not a COVID bubble, but I live in a bubble, which is called Silicon Valley. We have the next generation of philanthropic investors in this valley. They've got the money. They've got the wherewithal, but they really don't even understand charity. What they understand is problem solving. And so when I, I understand that it's embedded. I mean, I work in Europe. I work in Canada. I work in Australia. I understand that it's deeply embedded in our concept. But I think if we could just break out of that, I think that we would be seen as a viable partner. Because I think if we're going to do this collaborative problem solving to help reshape our world after the end of this COVID, if it's ever over, truly over. And I think that we have to be seen as more vigorous, more nimble. We are not perceived as a nimble sector. We're just not. Absolutely. And uh, it, I mean, it drives the next gen philanthropists crazy. Because it seems like we are so process oriented that, oh my God, this is going to take forever. And so I just, I really wanted to, to put that on the table. And the other thing that I wanted to say that one of the things that I worry about is that philanthropy is only successful when it comes from abundance, not scarcity. We're, we're not about scarcity. We are about abundance. We're about creating abundance. Philanthropy comes from abundance. What I have seen in the organizations that did not fare well in this pandemic was a, an obsession with scarcity, 
as opposed to an allegiance to continuing to convey abundance and impact. And I think this is one of the, like the, the, the kind of the tension points as we emerge. Thank you. Right. So the, the tension between being serving or solving yep. and the tension between abundance and, and scarcity. Okay. So those are very light topics. We can probably deal with those in a second <laughs> or two and move on to something bigger and better. Right. No, I'm kidding. Those are huge. Um, who wants to tag into that or, 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 or layer something else in? Mark, you've been musing for a few minutes. Any thoughts? Well, I mean, I think in Canada, uh, you know, if you think of 2020, Obviously, COVID is the big story. The other big story was uh, we had a scandal involving a charity. Most scandals involving a charity go on for a few days at most and a few articles, but this was still going on. Lots of parliamentary committees, I would say, wouldn't be an exaggeration to say thousands of articles in the newspaper on this scandal. Um, you know, so we've had to deal with that and other issues. Um, I think probably the biggest challenge we have is public trust. Right now, public trust it appears might have dropped so low that people trust corporations more than they trust charities, uh, which is sad, but it's uh, not surprising at all when we have um, sort of a push for deregulation by some groups um, and we don't get rid of bad apples and all that sort of stuff. So in other words, we're a brand to some extent. Um, and if we're going to allow everyone, including those who want to do things inappropriately in the sector, then we get smeared. It's like pizza, pizza. Unfortunately, if they have one restaurant that's doing something really bad, it sort of reflects poorly on everyone. So trust and, and having information. When I look at Americans, they get the 990 every year with huge amounts of information, perhaps too much on, on some of the charities. We have uh, maybe a quarter or less of the information available on our charities, which is unfortunate. Uh, because, um, you know, some people will just give because they love the cause, they love the thing, but some people actually have some questions they want answered. And uh, it's very time consuming if you have to spend an hour with each donor, you know, every $20 donor, you've got to answer a whole bunch of questions. So it's sometimes just much quicker, put more information up there so it's easily accessible to people uh, and that sort of thing. The, the traditional issue of restricted gifts versus unrestricted funding has become a really big issue, um, you know, because... We have uh, private foundations sitting on $80 billion right now, and much of it is unrestricted and could be spent, but it's not really being spent very much of it. Um, but some of it is restricted and uh, couldn't really be spent. And that's a challenge for groups. And they have to be thinking a little bit more sometimes about whether they will accept uh, restricted gifts and what sort of restrictions and what sort of changes could be uh, in the future. Because the only thing that I see that is consistent is change. The only thing that I see that really is, and it's just happening at a very quick pace, and 30 years ago, maybe saying, I want to have a perpetual endowment to deal with, you know, Chinese music uh, as, you know, uh, through through some other lens of, you know, children or something that might have made sense. Now you just have to realize things are just moving so quickly that uh, thinking of perpetuity and all this is, is inevitably going to result in a lot of friction. And, you know, on the bright side, charities have adapted uh, remarkably well with the little capacity they have, the little money that they have for technology and things like that. They, I think they've generally speaking, done a pr very good job of, of with the limited resources they have to make a change. And I also think that generally, and I think this was mentioned earlier, charities are not the most, um, how should I say, quick to want to change things, like change it up every day. Sometimes they can be a little bit conservative in their approach and things like that for a number of different reasons. But it's a golden opportunity to make some changes, like, for example, with technology. People who were reluctant to use technology uh, in early March of last year, by April, you would think they've been very involved with technology for a long time. 
But this, I don't think is going to, I think we're going to go back in some respects with some people when they go back into the office and other things. So uh, it's a golden opportunity to invest in technology, to, to change systems that are very inefficient and ineffective and, and improve them, um, that sort of thing. And, um, and yeah, I think the, the biggest challenge is going to be on the equity side. Um, you know, when I see these $40 billion foundations that Harvard has and they're aggressively fundraising for more money, um, I think people are going to more question it and say, you know, what's going on here? And I think philanthropists who don't pay attention must expect that they're going to be criticized. All because you give $100 million doesn't mean you're a saint. You could have done some terrible things in business, raised billions of dollars illegally, and then you're giving away $100 million. Now that makes you a saint? No. All it does is it raises your profile and people will criticize you. So it's it's unfortunate, but I think they need to look at um, uh, having some more equity uh, better funding. And I don't know that it's philanthropy is going to solve this problem because I just, I don't see much traction. I see maybe 10% of big philanthropists are very focused on changing and increasing, but many are sitting and they're basically doing the same things. They've got the same systems. They're giving to the same groups. They're not really changing that much. I think it's government that probably, which we give 70% of the money in our sector who can make a bigger impact by, first of all, just not cutting dramatically in a year or two. That would be one great thing. But also, um, I mean, the Canadian government has decided to fund black serving organizations and black leg organizations over five years to the tune of in total $25 million. Like that is a total joke. $5 million a year they're giving to black organizations who represent 3.5% of our country. I mean, it's, it's embarrassing. So, you know, they should be giving 300 million, billion dollars, something like that. And, and they just spent 150 billion, you know, so it's not like they're not prepared to spend money. They are, but it's very sad. And when they give to the sort of traditional suspect type organizations, you know, established good organizations, a whole bunch of money. Uh, but then they, they sort of cut out these other groups. It's, it's unfortunate. So I'm both optimistic, uh, that there will be some change and people are, I think people are fed up to some degree. They're, they want change and it's good. I think people need to express it and get out there and push for change. Uh, because I'm not seeing sometimes from established leadership, the type of leadership, uh, you know, I just saw some proposals recently. One of them comes from 25 years ago, could have been a cut and paste. And I'm thinking to myself, we're dealing with some really significant issues right now. It's as if COVID never happened. It's like, oh, COVID, you add a couple paragraphs in, but then what do we want? We want the same stuff we've been asking about for 10 years, mm -hmm. but not necessarily the stuff that's really relevant to the smaller organizations, the medium-sized organizations. It's more relevant to the major philanthropists, the big foundations um, who have a seat always at the table. They're never not going to be at the table. So I'm not worried about those groups so much. And uh, so I'm, I'm waiting to see, obviously, what's going to happen, but um, I'm worried. Uh, that uh, we may be sidelined. And if philanthropy really does rely on public trust as an important element, if our public trust has dropped and it doesn't, we don't make some big changes to to deal with that, then I, I think that uh, we could have some hard years ahead of us. Well, we know that COVID has certainly been an accelerant. So I think that's where it's accelerated some of the challenges, but also some of the opportunities. And uh, we saw that with technology. One of the largest or single largest issue, I think, identified by some of our big thinkers in this country it was something you started off with, Mark, which was we don't actually know uh, how our sector is doing because we've never really given it its due in terms of data collection and things like that. And that was identified by the Senate Working Group as one of the single largest, well, the number one issue. And so I think that's really important to bring up. I'm glad you talked about change. Um, but I, I think there's probably some um, healthy, respectful tension in this conversation around the role of philanthropy versus government. Um, one of the things I love about philanthropy, and I'll let 
maybe Paula or Kate dig into this is that uh, governments are not big on risk. That's where philanthropy can really and has traditionally played a significant role is they're the early risk capital that you need. And so I'm wondering, you know, what your thoughts are about that, Paula or Kay, or or you can completely sideline me and, and say, no, I want to talk about this, Vincent. Paula, you, uh, you, you sat listening to this. What do you think? Sure. I think uh, that's a really loaded uh, question you brought forth, Vincent. Um, government versus charities. I am, uh, I am, uh, I'm a socialist, so I'd love to put every charity out of business and have the government uh, take care of us all. That's a bit of an exaggeration, but um, they both play they both play a role. And you're absolutely right, Vincent. The government is not particularly nimble. I think in 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 either country. That said. You know, I think what we're we're seeing coming out of the U- United States right now is that governments can be nimble. They can be nimble both to the bad and also to the good, if the will is there. And we're we're seeing it with the rollout of the the vaccines in the U.S. happening incredibly quickly. Absolutely. We're watching here in Canada. We're watching it, and we're marveling at how the government could pull that off so rapidly. Um, so I think. I think there's a place for 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 everybody. I think the the more we hear the voices, you know, just harking back to what Kay was saying, the more we hear from our communities and the more we hear the voices that we haven't heard for such a long time, I think the better off we'll all be. Um, a, a good friend of mine often says, "A, a rising tide floats all boats," and I, so I think um, one of the things we're doing with the Association of Fundraising Professionals is is really trying to to listen as well as to advocate on behalf of, of nonprofits and fundraisers, advocate the government for, for more and better support and making more nimble systems. So uh, there's so much to unpack, but I'll, I'll leave it there for the moment. I, I would also just like to say that in my observations <clears throat> during this time, one of the determiners of how well nonprofits have navigated the pandemic has been their leadership. And it's not just the executive leadership, it is the board leadership. I worked with an arts organization whose board was inexperienced. They didn't know how to deal with the crisis and the organization has suffered terribly, pretty much drifting away from its mission, barely fired almost the whole staff, the whole thing. Other organizations, including a performing arts organization, a Baroque orchestra, on whose board I serve, they have navigated this with precision, with impact. They have grown their audiences, even though they haven't been in a concert hall for 14 months now. And 101 virtual performances, either pulled from their archives or later on, they were able to do, you know, small ensembles. And it has been just a most wonderful thing to observe how her leadership has kept everybody just rallied, positioned. The board is so involved. They're doing great strategic planning. So it suggests to us that as professionals, we seem to be, you know, searching for leadership models and leaders. And I just want to not let this program end without saying that I could not endorse that more. And just one comment I would make about the really good points that Mark has brought up about the big money continuing to go where the big money is. It's an instruction for us. It's an instruction for us about scarcity and abundance and about investing in success. There is a, a two word phrase that is drifting into everything 
from this infrastructure bill that Biden is putting forward in the U.S. right now to the an interview with one of our highest profile philanthropists in America. And it's the big bet. The big bet. You're going to hear more of that, I think, because it says that people will invest in the big bet. I invest in this and it's going to have reverberations, positive reverberations far beyond. It's like it's the risk taking, Vincent, that you're talking about. So I just want to be sure I got those two uh, two ideas in here. Those are great. Uh, thanks for that. I'm um, I, oh man, we could do a whole other episode or ten or maybe twenty. Um, I've always admired one of the things uh, early in my fundraising career. Uh, I remember doing some reading around the the nonprofit sector in the U.S. Uh, and and the nomenclature is quite interesting. Um, for a long time, it was called uh, the third sector. And, um, and then some, some spaces still is certainly academically, uh, you'll see those references. Uh, what I always liked about that was it wasn't, it wasn't called the only sector. It wasn't called the single sector. It was called the third sector. And it didn't mean necessarily that it was the most, least important. It meant that there was three sectors working together. I know Paul's going, well, maybe it is. And we have treated that way, not necessarily in the U.S., but in Canada. Um, but government and, uh, private sector and the voluntary sector or third sector, when they come together and try to get something happening, whether that's a big bet or a new deal or whatever it is, there's some really cool things that have historically happened. I'm curious to see whether what we'll see coming out of this, hopefully something good. Um, this community-centered fundraising is really an interesting out, outcropping of that that kind of allows for, I, you know, I'm not a big fan of, of, of seeing one thing or the other, uh, you know, uh, uh, but, but all donor-centered fundraising, not has its challenges, all community center fundraising, you know, there's some room for both, I think. So that's just my view. And I normally, um, I get into trouble on my podcast when I put too many of my views on the table, but um, I'm going to stop there and maybe uh, be mindful of time. And thank you all for coming. Hey, Paula, it's awesome as always to have you on uh, six times on our podcast. Kay, you're uh, two times and, and Mark two times. So thank you so much for taking time to talk about this. I know it's never enough time. But I want to just maybe go around the, the table and and, uh, and give you each a, a second to, to talk about what you're working on or what you want people to remember or um, things that are happening in the future. Remember, uh, this will be coming out in in, uh, in May or so. So think about beyond that. So maybe we'll start first with you, Mark. Um, what, do you, what do you want our audience to hear or take away from today or what you're doing or others are thinking about? Sure. Well, I think um, COVID has raised uh, issues of equity, but these issues existed long before COVID. They've just highlighted them to some extent. And we're not all in this together. And, uh, you know, we really do need to pay much more attention to it. And um, I think one of the challenges also is that, I, I don't know, some people call it performative types of things. People are saying things. I'm watching all these uh you know, groups having like uh, three BIPOC people on a, uh, giving a webinar. Uh, and then you look before they never had any BIPOC people, but you also look, they're not changing their organization at all. So all they're doing is having, on the one hand, I'm really happy. They're having three people. They're giving them prominence and all this. This is great, but they're not actually doing anything beyond that. And the same policy approaches they were using 10 years ago, it's exact same today. So nothing's really changed except that now they have three BIPOC people on a webinar. And so I'm a little bit worried that there's too much of that. And then the other thing is that, and I was talking to someone recently, I, I said, you know, I've come to the conclusion that except for like the KKK, everyone in Canada is for equity. 
every single person in this country is for equity and, you know, basically being fair and all this. It's just that some people want to achieve it in the next year or five years or 10 years. And others are very patient and they're prepared to wait 5,000 or 20,000 years. And that's really the key differential, I think. Um, and um, I, I think people shouldn't be patient about these issues. And I think that we shouldn't, if, uh, if organizations like representative organizations are not moving quick enough, they need to be pushed. Uh, they need to be helped, if you will, if you want to be nicer, to get to a place where they can be uh, more helpful to make sure that there is more uh, equity in our, in our country. And uh, ultimately, um, I think that um, COVID has um, given us certain uh, challenges and hopefully will rise to the occasion. Um, but I think also many people are exhausted uh, by all of it. And I think it's allowing some people to take advantage of the situation uh, because people are exhausted and they're not prepared to necessarily always stand up on things. So I'm worried about that. And um, I, I, I'm just, I guess, if, if there's a lot of proposals being put forth and they all say they're to avoid racism or colonialism and other things. But in fact, when you actually look at it, you say, how does this actually change the funding? How does it actually result in more black groups getting money? And the answer is, well, it may not at all then I just start to say that it's too much of a distraction. There are real things that can be done right now. Like much, you know, in America, they have a 5% disbursement quota from private foundations. In Canada, it's 3.5%. Why can't it be raised to 10%? And that's not even a solution. That's just a tiny piece of a solution because then you could give more to the opera. That's not going to solve the problem of inequality. But unless we can really seriously, and that's just one example and there are most foundations, not most, I don't know if they've been surveyed, many do not have support that at all. And so I'm just like, if you're not even prepared to support that, I mean, what are you going to support, right? And so there are so many things that can be done. And having one black person on a board of 20, I'm not sure that that's really the solution. And then you end up still funding the same exact groups that you were funding before. So I think we just really need to look at the sort of performative stuff versus what's actually changing and not be too impressed with uh, with some of these nice gestures. What are they actually doing to make this a fairer world? Well, Mark, I was, uh, I, you know, there you go again, sitting on the fence. We're not clear on how you feel. <laughs> I love that. Thank you, Mark. My family doesn't let me express how I feel, so I have to find other <laughs> outlets. Well, no, I love it. I, I'm so happy you did, and this is a great platform. Kay, you're up. What do you want our audience to hear and take away, or what do you want to share with them? I want our audience to believe that it is possible. Whatever it is that they're wanting to do, that it is possible. And I could not agree more with Mark about, you know, it's the fact that we're, we're still putting DEI over here in a compartment and we're kind of like showing it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We did this. I'm working with several organizations where it is become part of everything they do. It is so amazing. And not only that, the few people we have, the few people of color we have as development professionals continues to be alarming. And 30 years ago, when Hank Rosso and I were working on a Ford Foundation grant that the then fundraising school, an independent organization had received, and we worked in what are now the historic, you know, black colleges. And we, we went up to Pine Ridge up to the, um, the, the Indigenous Peoples Reservation in South Dakota. And we did our best, you know, but we are essentially a white profession because we deal with white people. And, you know, in the 30s, Ambrose Bierce was the cynic and writer was asked, you know, what is a philanthropist? And he said, it's a rich, white, old, bald man. Well, you know, we've come a long way, but it's still, I think, perceived that way. 
we have so much work to do. And I just want to kind of leave you. Uh, we had a, a gathering of our leaders of tomorrow, uh, people who had gone through our last full year of our program in Slovakia. And I, I, we, we generated these words and we just said, what can you do to pump energy, vision into what you're doing? And this was last September and people were pretty weary of the, of the epidemic already, the pandemic. Restructure, rediscover, reflect, reimagine, re-energize, reinvent, recommit, rebuild your courage, your vision, and your strategies, readjust each time something unexpected happens, and finally, renew. And I was a student of Bob Waterman who wrote um, The Renewal Factor many, many years ago. And he had two things that I would just leave you with. He said, renewal is the combination of stability plus change that you have a core that is you. It's your mission, your vision, your values, but you are willing to change. And he said it is stability in motion. And he gave two great ideas. <laughs> he says, we have to learn to take the best and leave the rest. And to do that, we have to surrender the memories. Okay. I'm, I'm now, now the, our show notes are so rich already. I'm going to have to have all of these references. In it. That's fantastic. Kate. Thank you for that. And, uh, and, th and, and thank you for all of the work that you have done historically and today. So thank you for that. Paula, you get the last word today. Wow. It was, it, how, how, how can I follow Kay and Mark? That's okay. Um, um, we need, we need 10 more minutes. Of yes. So go. <laughs> 10 more minutes. Go. Yes. Yes. And yes. <laughs> yes. We have some hard, hard, hard work to do. Yes. We need to rebuild trust in our sector. Yes. We need to listen to our communities. Yes. We need to continue fundraising. And this is what buoys me is that our our donor bases, they're as generous as they ever were. You know, Kay said the, the organizations that, that were continued to ask for donations during COVID did well. Nonprofits inspiring their, their donor bases to keep giving. This is what I love about what we do is that people want to be generous. Canadians, Americans, they are generous. And when you connect them well with a cause, they're going to keep giving. And so, you know, that's the kind of thing that, that helps um, boy my spirits because boy, you know, this pandemic has been, has been tough and not, and not, not equitably tough. And, and the last thing I'll say is just to try to take care of yourself and, and Kay, you're, you're ours took care of some of that for us. And that will be very helpful. I know you'll post those ours again, Vincent, but um, I think those will be incredibly important. And uh, thank you for the opportunity. To, to have all these wonderful conversations. Well, thank you all. It's been very inspiring. I feel like I felt good coming in. I feel amazing now. And that's even with all of the challenges in front of us. So thank you for that. With that, our gift of another Brain Trust Philanthropy powered by Betrayo has been committed. Well, that's about it for this episode of Brain Trust Philanthropy. Please join us next time when we share a special tribute episode to Simone Joyeux. Simone passed away suddenly on May 2nd, 2021. We are all devastated. To honor her memory, Lija Pena, Jay Love, and I hosted a podcast with tributes, stories, and memories of our beloved Sim One. 
Until then, take care, stay safe, and stay sane. We look forward to talking with you soon. Brain Trust Philanthropy is powered by Vitreo and is produced by Katja Asselmanning and me, Vincent Duckworth. Brain Trust Philanthropy is produced in beautiful downtown Calgary, Alberta. Follow our show and engage with fellow listeners on Twitter at Vitreo Group. That's at sign V-I-T-R-E-O Group. You can listen and subscribe to Brain Trust Philanthropy on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or by visiting our website, betrayalgroup.ca. Wishing all of you success in your mission, peace in your lives, and hope in your hearts. I'm Vincent Duckworth.